in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. All right, kids, raise your hand if you play soccer. Anybody play soccer in here? All right, now put your hands down. Next question. Kids, raise your hand if you know this person's face. His name is David Beckham. Anybody? There's a movie, Bend It Like Beckham, right? I know, he retired back in 2006. He's got all these awards and all of these records. However, you may have seen this. A few years ago, the most colossal prank was pulled on David Beckham by James Corden. The 2019 LA Galaxy season is going to kick off with a huge ceremony honoring their greatest ever player, David Beckham. To celebrate his career with the Galaxy, the team has built a brand new statue of David, which they'll unveil for the first time right here at this stadium in front of 25,000 people. Now, David's a good friend of mine, and when I heard that he hasn't seen the fully finished statue yet, I thought it might be fun to switch out the real statue with one that we made a little less flattering. In order to pull this off, our props department had to find the right balance between realistic and absolutely terrible. His biggest things he said when he saw the first sort of mock was that he said that the, he thought the chin was too big and the butt was too big. This is, this is what I'm thinking, because I think that is David Beckham, really. After two months of gruelling work, we brought the statue to the stadium for a private unveiling for David. The uh, statue is finished. And here it is, right here, in all its glory. Because <laughs> everybody knows David Beckham's smile and his three great teeth. This is the angle to really appreciate it. After two months of gruelling work, we brought the statue to the stadium for a private unveiling for David. Now, David thinks that he's coming here to this loading dock for a final, last-minute preview of the statue before it gets moved outside for the official unveiling. What David doesn't know is that everyone here is an actor, and we've placed hidden cameras all over. OK, we're hearing that the car is pulling up. Action stations. Uh, as you all know, I've done some uh, sculptures of some of the most amazing athletes, you know. But no one has been, to me, as iconic as David Beckham, really. Thank you. Yeah. So, without further ado, okay, David Beckham, we want you to meet David Beckham. I want you to look here on the different angles over here. What I did here is I've tried to capture you in motion. You see? You know? I mean... Yeah, but when we spoke in Chicago, there was catching me in motion, but also making me... I mean, look at my chin. Maybe this other angle. You want to... Come here. This is a better angle, maybe, no? It doesn't really look nothing like me, though. Look at my eyes. I mean, maybe if you stand back or something, maybe just a little bit. I mean, uh, to start, I'm going to have to stand back right behind the van. Where <laughs> are you going to move it to? Back to the studio. You've probably done me a favour there. <laughs> 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 
Brilliant. Right? Okay. What, why did we start there? I think, I think you're smart enough to fix, figure out why I'm making how the dots I'm connecting here. David Beckham holds the records for, um, he's won titles on four countries. He's um, kicked the most free kick goals um, of any player. Of, uh, and he has all these records. And, but to see that memorial to him was scandalizing to him. Like you could see it on his face. Ashen, angry, exasperated. No, will you, you won't. I'm going to have to stand behind the band, right? He said to be able to see it with any kind of appreciation. He's upset about that. He's upset about the representation of him that is as false and misleading and distorting a memory to him or a legacy to his commitment to the sport. If David Beckham, some excellent soccer player, can be as upset by mistaken, misleading, well-intentioned, but distorting representations of him, then, beloved and welcome guests, could the one who is responsible for this um, here are photos from the James Webb telescope that came out last week. That's Jupiter, okay? That's rather impressive. Or, or what about this? This is NGC 3324. I know you keep up on your records there, but that's 3324. 3325 is further to the right. <laughs> or this. This is called Stefan's Quintet. It's a quintet of galaxies that are in there. If, if David Beckham can be upset about a misleading representation of him, can you understand why the Lord who is ostensibly responsible for everything that you just saw and that James Webb helped you get there, can you understand why he might be scandalized from false representations of him? He has every right to be scandalized by it. We are in a series on the Ten Commandments because we believe that they're not just a set of rules. We, we actually think they're a set of commitments that lead us to life and to freedom. And the first three commandments all have to do with worship. Because worship is at the center of every being. Why does James, Johnny Depp's little character there, and the guy says, are we making a God? If we didn't have one, we'd have to create one. The first three commandments all have to do with worship. And last week, we considered commandment number one, which is all about who you worship. The one who is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Mary, and Martha, and Huldah, and, and Ruth, and Esther, and all them. But the second commandment has to do not just with who to worship, but how. What shall be the manner of our worship? And to borrow a line from Jesus, when it comes to worship, we're to worship him in spirit and in truth. And wherever we diverge from that truth in any way, we minimize him. And we begin to feel perhaps just fractionally unsettled in the same way that David Beckham was with about his very distorted image. So we're going to consider the second commandment and its call to a true worship of God under three heads. What's the rule in play? What's the exception? And there's a reason I have that word exception in quotes. And then, what's the point? Um, let me be frank. Of all the Ten Commandments, the second is the one that you and I will probably the most go, why does this matter? How, do, how is this relevant at all? And I'm just asking you to be patient because it relates. So, it'd go by quick, but if you could stand, we're in Deuteronomy chapter 5. We'll start in verse 8, and it'll be over before you know it. Deuteronomy 5, starting in chapter, uh, verse 8. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is on the earth beneath, 
or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. This is the forthright word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. If you had heard the first four chapters of Deuteronomy, as Israel had heard or read, um, you could have seen the second commandment coming. Because on several occasions, even within those first four chapters, there are references to Israel's errors that would lead to Moses having to reiterate what the second commandment says. And so in Deuteronomy 4, you hear this spoken, watch yourselves very carefully, since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, out of the midst of the fire, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water under the earth. That's the warning. That's the warning that he is out to issue to us, and that's why we might understand the second commandment. But if you're listening there in Deuteronomy 4, you realize that's not just a, a law being restated, that's invoking a memory. And if you're listening closely, and if you have any basic understanding of Israel's history, then you know that it is invoking the memory of Moses upon Mount Sinai. Horeb is the place where he saw the presence of God and the burning of the bush, and it's also near the place where he received the Ten Commandments for the first time. And that was an interesting story back there in Exodus, right? Um, Israel sees, sees Moses go up to Mount Sinai. They wait, they wait, they buy their time, they play their cards, they check their news, all that stuff. Nothing's happening. They're waiting for him to come down. He's delayed. Maybe he's dead. They start to feel uneasy. And then Israel makes a choice. You know what? Hadn't heard from God for a while. Uh, haven't had any experiences of being in the presence of God, whether it's through a a bush or a, a column of fire or a pillar of smoke. We haven't heard any of that. We're worshiping people. So I know. Let's make an image. And so they say, Aaron, here's our gold. We'll melt it down. You make an image of us, make an image of God. And he does. He makes an image of a golden calf in Exodus 32. And here's a famous rendering of that moment when Israel begins to worship before a golden calf. Now let's be very clear about what that is and isn't. That is not Israel saying, we're done with you, Lord. We're going to find some other Lord. This was a representation they were trying to come up with God. Golden calves were sort of a familiar icon of many faiths and cultures in that day. It was a symbol of fertility, so they, they reached for the closest thing they could to an object of reverence, and they said, we'll make a golden calf, and we'll worship the Lord as the golden calf. Because in Exodus 32, you hear Aaron say, tomorrow will be a feast to whom? Not to some alternative God, but to the Lord. They're dancing, they're celebrating, and everything is all about what? The Lord before this golden calf. Well, how does that day end? Hmm. If you know the story, the day ends poorly. Moses smashes the commandments. A lot of people die. It was a bad day. And we go, what? <laughs> What's the deal? I mean, give them a little credit. They're worshiping people. All of us 
are naturally worshiping. We all find something to attach to, to long for, to be the north star for us. We all do it, even if we're aware of it or conscious of it or admit it or not. We all have a God of some sort. Can you blame them for wanting to worship, even if it is a golden calf? Yeah, God finds a reason to blame them. Why? What happened in Exodus 32, that's borne out in what's in the rest of our passage this morning. The Lord is not indifferent to the manner in which his people worship. He says there in our passage, For I am the Lord your God, and I am a jealous God. Now, kids, you hear the word jealous, and you automatically think boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever it might be. And what is jealousy? It's, it's wherever jealousy happens, there's been a, a betrayal, a drift of love, an estrangement from one another. And, and, and usually in a human form of jealousy, what arises? Um, anger, uh, frustration, um, harm, uh, sudden feelings of insecurity, self-loathing, uh, bitterness towards the one who's drifting. Human forms of jealousy, all of those emotions, they all boil down to this, this feeling of hurt. And, and you can't fault anybody in the midst of having a jealous concern for what they once had. That's a human form of jealousy. And the, Lord, the word that the Lord chooses here to describe himself as one is jealous. Now, that's a human word because that's all we've got are human words, even the ones that he's given us. So it's an analogy. So let's think about that for a second. Is the Lord feeling like a jilted lover, dejected, oh, I'm going to go sit on the couch and mope now. Is that him? D is the Lord ever hurt or diminished by us when our faithfulness or our love uh, drifts towards some other object? No, he doesn't need, he loves us. He doesn't need us. So if you will kind of try to if you will, try to strip down jealousy to its basic constituent animating principle. It's this. What is jealousy out to do? It is out to seek, to preserve, and protect that which is good. A jealous rage is not just anger at the person who is drifting. It's trying to, to bring back, to recapture, to recover that which you enjoyed and that which you delighted in mutually. The Lord is out here to protect that which we have with him. And therefore, he refers to himself as a jealous God. Uh, to put it in, in kind of try to merge the human and the divine ideas together, there's a theologian named Christopher Wright. He's a Brit. Maybe he's Australian. He said this, A God who was not jealous would be as contemptible as a husband who didn't care whether or not his wife was faithful to him. Jealousy is God's love protecting itself. A false worship of him, which we'll explain to you in what sense is it false here. God will be jealous for a true worship of him in spirit and in truth. And anytime you diverge from that, he will seek to protect that and act ways that are fierce. He's not indifferent to false worship. And what we heard in the rest of the passage that is that worship is a difference between a matter of hate and love. A false worship, he will equate with a form of hatred. And, and the harshest words you hear in this passage is what he says. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. What? 
that there is a downstream consequence of a false, diminished worship of him. What, what is all that about? Well, before you freak out about hearing that, if you move fast forward in Deuteronomy, in chapter 24, you hear this in verse 16. Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. The punishment is for what you have done. So how do you square the idea that God is visiting the iniquity of one generation upon the future generations with this? Here's an attempt at an answer. Beloved and welcome guests in history, I wonder, can you point to anything that you might say is our inheritance from an earlier generation that has wrought havoc in ours? Probably. Can you imagine anything that is presently at work prevailing upon a wide swath of culture that you can probably anticipate that a future generation is going to look back at us and say, what have you done? Parents, our errors have consequences. Kids, if you think that you will never ever act like your parents, <laughs> get ready. The first time you start sounding like your mom and dad, you're going to go, what has happened to me? What I think the Lord is intimating here is that when it comes to false worship, there is a blast radius to our error. There is a fallout that has consequences not only for our present, but quite possibly for our future. And God is there to warn us, hey, your choices have consequences. And a false worship of me is equivalent to a hatred of me. And as soon as we say that, though, you have to remember how he follows up that one very sobering line. But to those who love me, blessing upon a thousand generations. You may know the names of your great-grandparents, but probably not much further back. The Lord is saying, to those who love me, who worship me as I am, you have no idea of the blessing that unfolds and will redound far past the point at which those people will ever remember your name. Why is God so serious about this? You have to realize Israel is an outlier when it comes to the worship of their God. There is none, if any, ancient Near Eastern faith that doesn't have some sort of physical representation of their God to whom they worship. Israel says, nope, the Lord says, nothing. Do not represent me by anything in heaven, on the earth, or under the earth. Period. Full stop. Why? Let me see if I can unpack that in maybe more familiar, more familiar terms. About a decade ago, they installed on the mall in Washington, D.C., at last, a national memorial to Martin Luther King. And here it is, made of granite from China. And, uh, yeah, and um, the inscription was from something uh, that um, Martin Luther King said, out of a stone of despair, a valley of hope. And open to much fanfare and thanksgiving and admiration, plenty of that. You would expect that. But at the same time, 
there were, on the part of those who knew him best, a certain measure of disappointment. Maybe even a little bit of disgust. They, they certainly didn't besmirch the intentions of those who came up with the model or of the sculptor who did it or of those who installed it. But those who knew him best, when they saw the visage that had been chosen to represent him, they said, you have, you have failed to capture something essential to his being. And they even went so far as to say that it almost would have been preferable if you had no memorial at all than the one that you chose. Because somehow in the homage, notwithstanding to what you were trying, you have now created something that is at least misleading and at worst distorting to his memory. You have in some sense diminished him. Well, that sounds a little bit like what's in play here in the second commandment. Anything that you might choose to remember God or to focus your attention on him, to worship him, anything that you might choose that is of this earth that is familiar to you, you are automatically creating limits. You are diminishing him. You have, you have done a trade-off. What's a trade-off? It's a, I don't know, maybe it's an economic term, a philosophical term. A trade-off is this. A trade-off is a compromise that you've made. I, I give something up in order to gain something. That's what a trade-off is. And the, all, the, I, the aspiration of a trade-off is that whatever you give up is still less than what you get back. But in this case of Martin Luther King, what you gave up in trying to create a, a something that captured his essence what you gave up in, in creating this was more than what you gained from it. And that's what the second commandment is saying. Let, let, me, let me talk about the dangers of a trade-off when it comes to representation in another way. And this time I'll direct it to kids. Kids, um, you don't have to raise your hand. Um, some of you may be on this thing called social media. Right? And um, Andy Crouch has just written a book. It's entitled... Uh, the Life We're Looking For, Reclaiming a Relationship in a Technological World. It will be my beach read soon. Um, he would argue this. Uh, newsflash, uh, relationships are hard. Um, they're messy, they're disappointing, they're work, they're difficult. Even though there's all sorts of great things that come with them, they're difficult. And kids, you know that. In fact, you know that relationships are hard such that what you have adopted or embraced, and it's not just you, believe me, our parents do too. <laughs> Social media as a way of navigating and uh, conducting relationships affords you a lot more control than you ever had from face-to-face, in-person connection. You can put out there through social media a representation of yourself and that representation is never really you. It is just the parts of you that want, you want them to see. So they have this very two-dimensional picture of you, a cardboard cutout of you, and you have come to enjoy that because it gives you more control about what other people see in you and know in you. And you know what happens in the course of that? That becomes a preferable way of relating to other people than actually being in connection with them face-to-face and in person because that's messy and that's hard and that feels bad. But Andy Crouch in his book, he would say this, in many ways, once we've been hurt by other people, the control and choice afforded by social media in terms of how and when we're known and by whom we're known is very appealing. But the dangerous thing is we're not really well known through these media. And he goes on to say, the longer you let social media be the only means by which anybody knows you, you don't know how to have relationships anymore. 
It is like you are purposely walking around on crutches with one leg up like this, even though everything is fine. If you walk like that forever, what happens to the leg that you have up? It atrophies. It can't support your weight. You have hobbled yourself because you have chosen to put a representation of yourself out there rather than the true you. And I get it. I know why you'd want to do that. But you've made a trade-off. You think the gain of only showing the parts of you is more than what you have to give up by forgetting how to actually relate to people. And I'm just here to tell you, you're giving up too much. Why is the Lord so serious here? I'll tell you why. You know what happens in Israel? When they start making graven images like the, the golden calf, instead of just sort of saying, you know what, nothing is comp- comparable to you. Nothing is, so I won't even try. It is a short hop in Israel's history from representing the Lord through a created thing. It's a short hop from there to worshiping another god. Because Aaron started it. Well, they gave me their gold. I made a golden calf. My bad. It's a short hop from Aaron to King Ahab, which we studied a few weeks ago in the story of Elijah, who is then saying, forget it. These gods, I can see them. I dig them. I'll go with them. That's Israel's history. And you may think, I don't care. What difference does it make? Pastor, have you ever come to my house and seen me on my front steps with my whittling knife? You know, hello, Cletus, what is that? Balsam or birch? What are you whittling? I'm worshiping, I'm whittling the Lord. You, you haven't done that. And I'm, I'm also pretty sure that I will never walk into your house and see a shrine to whatever you have whittled to represent God. So what difference does it make? I told you, this is the one where you go, tell me, Lord, how does this relate to them? How does it relate to me? I'll tell you why. In the same way, it was a short hop from Israel to make a golden calf to represent God and coming up with worship to another God. Here's the connection for us. Um, What do uh, George Burns, Graham Chapman, Morgan Freeman, Alanis Morissette, David Strathern, and Octavia Spencer all have in common? They've all played God in film. Every one of them. Quite a panoply of different expressions of what it means to be the Lord. Now look, the make, people making films, they don't care about what you worship. They just want you to pay and buy a ticket. So we know what their God is, right? But it is a short hop from coming up with human representations of the Lord and making a God in your own image. Now this will be lighthearted, but here's a scene from, from Major League about the natural impulse to find something that will serve us. I cannot hit curveball. Straight ball, I hit it very much. Curveball, bats are afraid. 
I ask Jobu to come. Take fear from bats. I offer him cigar and rum. He will come. You know, you might think about taking Jesus Christ as your savior instead of fooling around with all this stuff. Jesus. I like him very much. But he no help with curveball. <laughs> Jesus, I like him very much, but he no help with curveball. He fashions, it's funny, I know. He fashions an image to his own liking, to his own need. And friends, here's our struggle that finds its origins in the struggle of Israel there in, in pre-exilic times. You and I will fashion some sort of Lord in our own image. And, and that can split out in two ways. You, you can create a 3D printer God uh, these are, this is my design, these are my specs, um, these are my requirements, my, my preferences, uh, my purposes, and whatever I want is what I will get. And that's the God I'll serve <laughs> if I want to. This Lord will never push back. This Lord will never confront. This Lord will never make me feel unsettled or unpleasant. You and I are able and willing and capable and have a history of creating God in our own image to our own liking. But on the flip side, you can also create a God according to your own pathology. You and I can imagine a Lord that just is a projection of the worst things of our mom and dad. You and I can ascribe to the Lord the sum total of all of our disappointments and be disgusted with him because we have fashioned a God in our own image. The one that we want and the one that we despise as a way to justify not listening to the God who is. That's the trouble. That's the concern. The principle that's at work here in the second commandment is this. When you're a kid and you're at a parade and you suffer from being short and right you're in front of a brick wall and you can't see a thing, your natural impulse is to say, pick me up, pick me up, I want to see, there's more to see, there's more to know. And who would fault you for wanting to gain more information from your curiosity? You hear all sorts of great stuff and everybody's cheering and oh my gosh, the cotton candy, I can smell that. Can I just see the parade? I understand the impulse. Your curiosity wants to find it. You want to have something that your senses can grapple onto. Here's what's at work in the second commandment, though. I think the Lord is saying, whatever your gaps in your understanding of me, it is better to leave those gaps of understanding in place than to fill them with misleading distortions of who I am. Because every time you install or establish some sort of familiar representation of the Lord. What are you doing? You're automatically diminishing his purpose and his glory. You can't capture who God is, the one who is responsible for Stefan's quintet of the galaxies, and come up with something that's familiar to you without diminishing him. So don't try. God's reputation is not fragile. 
but it is precious. And therefore, you might consider that the rule is don't be careless. Don't be thoughtless in how you conceive of him. Always be aware that you are capable of creating him in your own image, not the images he has chosen to portray himself. That's, that's the struggle. That's the problem with the rule. What's the help? What will help us not make those errors, follow those impulses, such that we make him into our own image, whether it's to our own liking or to our own pathology? Let me give you a hint. It's the exception to the rule. And I have the word exception there in scare quotes or air quotes for a reason. Because when it comes to Jesus Christ, there is no debate about whether he was a historical figure. Even the most atheistic uh, representatives of uh, philosophy or, or science, or it might be, none of them debate whether he was a real person. But as to whether or not he was divine, whether or not he was God, plenty of debate. And he will always rage until we all bend the knee. which should make it rather remarkable in our part that among Jews who know the second commandment that you find Philip saying to Jesus in John, show us the Father, and Jesus saying, Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And for Thomas, after he's finally touched the risen Lord's wounds, he says to him, wow, nice trick. No, he says, my Lord and my God. These are Jews saying this to Jesus. And if there's anybody, the last person you would ever expect ascribing to Jesus divine status, it would be Paul, who knew the law thick and through, who knew the second commandment in his sleep, who could probably recite it backwards. But he says to the church at Colossae, Jesus is the image of the invisible God which is just seconded by what the author of Hebrews says in chapter 1. Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. Okay, wait a minute, Lord. Did you just break your own commandment? Did, did you fudge on the second commandment? Well, let's rewind the tape and do another close reading. What happened? He says, don't you and not me ever create anything as a stand-in for the Lord. He didn't say anything about himself. The issue is not about images in themselves. The issue is about images that falsify the record or diminish the glory of who the Lord is. Jesus has come to clarify for us who, Jesus, who the Lord is because he himself is God. He has come to correct our understanding of who the Lord is. That's who is Jesus primarily talking to in that famous parable of Luke chapter 15 about the two sons, what we know as the prodigal God. Who is his primary audience? It's not the heathens. It's the Jews who think there is absolutely no way, no way that God would ever love someone who had spurned him, that God would never show mercy or kindness or love who had who had come to him and said, I wish you were dead. God would never be like that. And Jesus is there. I'm here to correct your understanding. The Lord is your shepherd. He makes you lie down in green pastures. He leads you beside still waters. He restores your soul. And you have forgotten. And I have come to clarify. And that's where we get to the last thing here. 
when it comes to the struggle that we have, the challenge to resist the desire to want to create a picture of the Lord in our own minds or in a visual display, and Jesus comes along to be the exception to that rule, he is an image of the invisible God, and yet he is the perfect demonstration of who divinity is. What's the point of all of that? Jesus has come to show us who God is like. He has come to show us what divinity is like, but he's also come to show us what humanity is like. Everybody's asking these days, what does it mean to be a man? What does it mean to be a woman? Those are important questions, important foundational questions. But let's back up a little bit and ask a better question. What does it mean to be human? Jesus is our template. You want to know what humanity looks like? You look at him. You'll get a picture of what humanity and what divinity is like in the same person. Wow, how economical. But why has he done that? Not only has he come to show us who God is and who we are, but he's come to do something else. About 50 years ago, a Japanese company paid the Roman authorities $4.2 million to restore the Sistine Chapel. We, we made a joke several months ago about what our roof might look like in the future, and we thought, why not the Sistine Chapel as an, as a, as an analogy? Sorry, that's, <laughs> you think metal's expensive. Um, Japanese company pays Rome four and a half million dollars to take the frescoes of the Sistine Chapel and restore them to their original beauty. So here's one of those frescoes. That's the Michelangelo's version of Daniel on the left before the restoration, and that's what it looks like on the right, even on a washed-out projector. Renewal and restoration at great cost. Genesis 1 says that humanity, male and female, were created in the image of the Lord. Male and female, we created them, he says. Sin comes along in our attempt to become our own God, to do things, to know our good and evil apart from him, and what happens? That image is, if you will, defaced. Something vital about us and about the God in whom his image we are made has been obscured. What has Jesus come to do to restore the image to its original intention? And that's why Paul will say in Ephesians chapter 4 this, that to follow Christ is to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. At the cost of his own blood, he has come to restore unto us the image in which we were created, which we've defaced by our own sin and our own corruption. He has come to restore to us a sense of who this God is in whose name we gather, that we might worship him, what? In spirit and in truth. What is the takeaway from the second commandment? I will give you a little inside baseball on how it applies to us, we who lead worship. Look, it's not lost on me that there are sizable segments of the Christian tradition, our Roman Catholic brothers and sisters, our Orthodox brothers and sisters, who live and die by showing images of Jesus. You can't walk into any one of those churches or cathedrals without seeing it prominently displayed, and that's a focus of their reverence. I get that. I hear that, and I wonder, oh, no. what about the, yeah, here's that. Let me also say this. There are all sorts of resources out there that are wonderful, that give insight and, and, and spark the imagination about what God is like and what Jesus is like, and you may sometimes wonder, why is it that we never show clips of like the Robert Powell version of the Jesus of Nazareth, you know, when Jesus had a British accent? 
Or why do we never show clips from The Chosen with Jesus in it? Uh-oh. <laughs> it's not because we find any of those objectionable. In fact, we highly encourage it. It's a wonderful retelling. It's a wonderful reimagination of what it is. We understand where that's coming from. We understand why people would buy Sally Lloyd-Jones' The Jesus Storybook Bible. Our family did. We read through it, and there's that's Jesus. Visual representation. Let me tell you why we don't do it here. It's not because any of those are substandard. It's not because we discourage any of it. It's because when you come into this room, there's a different purpose than when you leave this room. There's nothing special about the room, but it is the purpose in which we've come to gather here that the room serves. You've come here not simply to learn or to see. You and I have been tasked with a privilege, and that is to worship him. And so when you're outside these worlds and you're trying to learn and you read, I mean, all of those resources are wonderful, but when we come in here, Look, in our tradition, if we're going to err, we're going to err on the side of caution. Because every time you try to represent God in some way, you are automatically limiting it. As Craig and I were talking about it before worship, you have read a book that became a film, and you saw the film and you thought, oh my gosh, they missed. They have whiffed on that character. Luke would never have tried to kill Kylo Ren. Never! The attempt to picture it automatically limits you, automatically puts limits on how you can refer to the fullness of it. And that's why, look, if we get to heaven and I find out it would have been fine, you could have shown chips with the chosen, I will come up to you and say, I'm sorry. But if we're going to err, we're going to err on the side of caution. Because we don't want to put anything that limits your vision of who it is when we've come to worship. Now, what's what's the application for you? How do you know when you see Lord right? It comes down to how you see yourself. It comes down to how you see your purpose. How do you know if you see the Lord right? The shortest song that David Wilcox ever wrote, it went like this. If I had a spell of magic, I would make this enchantment for you. A burgundy heart-shaped medallion with a window that you could look through so that when all the mirrors are angry with all your faults and all you must do you could peek through that heart-shaped medallion and see you from my point of view in the gospel it's not a heart-shaped medallion it's a cross-shaped medallion and when you look at that cross then when you struggle with your faults and everything that you're failing at what you can see is how God sees you. And that's when you have a true sense of him. And it also means you have a true sense of his purpose. In Deuteronomy 4, why is it so important that Israel have a proper understanding of God? Because keep and do my commandments for they will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who then will hear all these statutes and will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Your purpose is to be a testimony in this world, in some form or fashion, sometimes with words, other times with actions, always his. And when you see him as he is, those are the markers of your understanding. And that means at any point, in your tears and in your laughter, there are always two questions you have to ask yourself. What has he done for me? What has he done for us? 
And what does he ask of us? Those are two questions we should always have an answer for. And when we are struggling or when we are soaring, it's the answers to those questions that show us what we believe and prove to us that we understand. And that's why in J.D. Salinger's lesser-known novel, Franny and Zoe, Franny's a 19-year-old college student who's starting to use the Jesus prayer, which is an orthodox tradition prayer. Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy upon me, a sinner, saying it over and over again. And, and she says it, and her brother Zoe, he, he says to her, Franny, if you're going to say the Jesus prayer, at least say it to Jesus, and not to St. Francis and Seymour and Heidi's grandfather wrapped up in one. Keep him in mind if you say it, and him only, and him as he was, and not as you'd like him to have been. That's why the second commandment's here. And we give thanks that the Lord has given us an image of himself in his son that has done more of the display but to demonstrate to us his goodness and what it means to be human. Let's pray. Oh, Father, help us to see you as we are gathered here in worship and as we leave this place. You mean for us to grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord and you have given us ample examples and pictures and stories and books and mercies and films and all those things and we, we pray that you would build in us a clear sense of who he is, who you are, that we might worship you in spirit and in truth. Father, help us now to come to this table and see you in the bread and in the wine. In Jesus' name, amen.